0: What we're going to do this year for Advent is in the four weeks starting this morning, we're just really going to walk through the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew, and walk through the story that we celebrate during this Christmas season. So with this first week, we're going to start with the announcement to Mary that comes in Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26. So if you have a Bible, you can start to turn there now. I'm going to start the message just by reading through the passage. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, you can read along up on the screen and just listen as I read it to us. It's going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is God's word. Let's pause and let's pray together before we move forward. Father, thank you that we get to celebrate such an amazing reality, your son being born so that he could rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, from this world, from judgment. Thank you so much for a story worth celebrating. And we pray that during this Advent season, but not just during this Advent season, but especially now, you keep our eyes focused on you. We come to you because we need you We need hope, we need peace, we need joy, we need to experience your love. And God, we cry out to you that this morning that you will be honored, the glory will come to you, and we pray that you fill our hearts with hope through this story. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're ever out hiking, one of the things that you notice, it's something that's Really obvious, but you notice that every physical object has a shadow. Even really small things. So you notice the rocks just on the side of the road and they have shadows, and you notice the bushes and they have little shadows, but you don't take a lot of notice of them because typically you only really notice a shadow if it's a very impressive shadow. And the larger the shadow, the larger the thing that casts the shadow. And also, the larger the shadow, the more likely you are to pause and take notice of the thing casting the shadow. So if you're hiking and you see a giant shadow, you want to say, all right, is that that some huge tree? Is that some large overhang, some large boulder? Because the larger the thing, the larger the shadow, and the larger the shadow, the the more likely you are to want to pause and see what cast it. And this year we're calling our series, our Advent series, The shadow of Bethlehem. Because we are celebrating an event that happened over 2,000 years ago, and yet we still live in the shadow of what happened upon the birth of Jesus. So much so that people of all cultures and all backgrounds all around the world celebrate this event. And some of you might be saying, but they don't really. I mean, they celebrate Christmas, but they're not really celebrating Jesus. And to some extent, that's true. People are just kind of celebrating the season or celebrating presents and trees and things like that. And at the same time, whether they know it or not, they are observing the celebration of this event that happened. I mean, for heaven's sake, you know how the word Christmas starts? (laughs) Christ. This is still about Jesus. Even if people celebrating it aren't consciously celebrating it, we still live in light of the events that happened in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. And what we're going to see, especially this morning, as we look at the angelic announcement to Mary, is that when it comes to our Christmas celebration and our understanding of the Christmas story in general, the Christmas story hinges on the identity of Jesus. The Christmas story is only worth celebrating at a high level depending on what we believe about the identity of the baby who was born that morning and who was prophesied about in the passage that we'll walk through here. As we walk through this story, one of the things I, I want us to be able to talk about is not just, all right, how during this Advent season do we make sure to keep Jesus at the center of things? That's good, and that's a good win for the month of December. But obviously, we want to talk about far beyond that. We want to talk about how we rightly live in light of these events, how we live in the shadow of what God did through the birth of Jesus and through what happened afterwards. And, and what I want to zero in even on specifically this morning is, is the idea that here in this first week of Advent, the theme that we talk about is that Jesus Christ is our hope. And so as we walk through this announcement to Mary, each moment, each kind of segment of the passage, we're going to pause and talk about how it ties into hope. And now, just to be clear on hope, when we're talking about hope, We're not just talking about the things that we put on our Amazon wish list and really hope that we get for Christmas. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not just saying, well, I kind of hope that this happens. This is my wishful thinking. Hope is when you place your expectation on something. When you say, I am banking on this. Hope has to do with looking at the future and saying, I believe that there's something good in the future. I believe better days are ahead. And where your hope is placed indicates why it is that you believe that better days are ahead. So in this story that we just read through, there's really the the angel bringing the message. And in a way, he brings three messages. He brings a message about Mary. He brings a message about the child. And he brings a message about God. And we'll walk through each of those parts. And we start with the message about Mary. Mary because the first thing that the angel says is something about her. So, so we jump into the middle of Luke a little bit. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. So if we'd started at the beginning of Luke, we would see that this is actually not the first miraculous birth announcement that happens in the book, because there's a priest named Zechariah, and he gets an angelic visit from the same angel Gabriel, in fact, this angel Gabriel, I know some of you men are part of the Wednesday night men's Bible study. You're going through the book of Daniel. Just wait, because in chapter eight and chapter nine of Daniel, Gabriel shows up. This is this messenger angel. So he shows up to Zachariah. Zachariah is an old man. His wife is an old woman. They've never been able to have children. And the angel announces, you're going to have a child and you're going to name that child John. And he grows up to be the man that we typically call John the Baptist. And so he's updating us. He's saying, all right, Elizabeth now is in her sixth month of pregnancy and God sends Gabriel out again. And this time he sends Gabriel to Nazareth. And as soon as he says he sends him to Nazareth, this is the first of several indications that this is an extraordinary event happening in very ordinary surroundings. You can read through the entire Old Testament. You are not going to find Nazareth in there. Nazareth is not an important town in Israel. This is a basically anonymous place that didn't have a lot of fanfare surrounding it. No prophet came out of there. No king was born there. No significant miracles happened there. And yet this is where this event is gonna take place. Now, before our family moved here to be a part of this church, um, we were a part of a church up in Oregon. Um, And I'm not making this up. You can look it up later. (laughs) The name... Of the town where this church is, is Boring Oregon. B O R I N G, exactly what it sounds like. Boring Oregon. And it's an appropriate name for the town. You kind of blink in your past that there's not much to it. Now, if there was some national news story about something significant happening in Boring Oregon, we would all be surprised. Nazareth is the boring Oregon of Israel. This is so, it's so shocking. And it's to the point that um, when Jesus is beginning his ministry, he's beginning to gather disciples, he finds a man named Philip. And Philip is really taken with Jesus and really thinks, all right, this might be the person who was promised to us. And so Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel, and he says, "We, we, we found him, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, well, who is he? And he says, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the Nazareth we're talking about. It's the first indication that this is an extraordinary event happening in a very ordinary setting. So it says, It sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And next week, actually, when we get into the angelic announcement to Joseph, we'll see a little bit more about Joseph. He gets to take a little bit more of a a primary role in that part of the story. But what we have basically got is a young, engaged woman, probably a teenager, because that would have been the normal custom of this time. She's not from royal lineage. She doesn't have really important parents. She's not famous. She's not rich. She's an ordinary young woman from a very ordinary town. And yet she gets this greeting in verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Greetings, you who are highly favored. Or if you grew up or have some background in the Catholic Church, you may have heard a different translation of this, which would be, Hail Mary, full of grace which actually it's not necessarily a bad translation. Hail Mary, full of grace, depending on how you understand that last phrase, full of grace. Because there are two different ways that you can be full. You could have somebody in your life that you would say they are full of wisdom. If I have problems, I go to them and I explain the situation and they pour out their wisdom to me. They are full of wisdom because they've got a lot of wisdom that they can give out to other people. But there's another way that you can be full, and that's the way that you feel after Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) You're full because you consumed a whole bunch of things. You received something from the outside. Mary is full of grace, but not in the sense that she has a whole bunch of grace to give to all of us. She is full of grace in the sense that she has received grace from God. In fact, you see later in verse 30, the angel says to her, you have found favor with God. And and more literal translation would just be, you have found grace with God. By the way, almost the same thing that was said about Noah in Genesis 6 in the passage we went through a couple weeks ago. God says of Noah, he found grace with the Lord. And then Noah gets to be right in the center of something big that God does. And the angel comes to Mary and says, you have found favor with the Lord. You are highly favored because she is about to be right at the center of something that God is doing. And this is surprising because there's nothing special about Mary. There's nothing special about Nazareth. And if you're thinking that that's not what Mary's thinking, that she's not surprised by this, just look at her response because basically what happens in this passage is three times the angel speaks and three times Mary responds. So verse 29 is her first response. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. Now the idea of being troubled by an angelic visit, that's normal. When (laughs) angels visit you, people aren't like, oh, that's a nice little baby with a bow and arrow. They are scared. Angels are scary. In fact, the next thing that the angel is going to say to Mary is, do not be afraid. But I want you to notice this, because it doesn't say that she was troubled by his appearance. It says she was greatly troubled at his words, at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Mary's perplexed, and, and I, it's, it's hard to imagine that she wasn't also troubled by the appearance of the angel, but she's troubled by his words. You'd say, like, well, what's troubling about the words? Greetings, you are highly favored. Those are good words. She's not troubled because this is bad news. She's troubled because this is probably confusing news. This is just an ordinary young woman from an anonymous town and an angel shows up and says, greetings, you who are highly favored. And Mary probably did this. (laughs) Like, really? Like you're you're talking to me? You're, You're giving attention to me right now? She's surprised by the attention, and frankly, this is nothing new. This is a constant that you see through Scripture that God calls people to be at the center of what He's doing, and people are surprised that they're the one being called. In the book of Judges, God goes to Gideon, and He says, Gideon, through you, I'm going to deliver the people of Israel from oppression. And Gideon says, I don't know if you understand, but I am the weakest man of the weakest family, in the weakest clan, of the weakest tribe of an oppressed people. Are you sure you didn't go to the wrong address? It's like, really, me? When Isaiah is called to be a prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, he objects because he says, I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, he says, I, I'm not worthy of all of this. When Moses is called to be a prophet, he basically says, I don't talk so good. I'm not eloquent, I'm not good in front of crowds, I get nervous, I'm not good at this, maybe you should choose someone else. In fact, when Peter later on is about to become a disciple of Jesus, he goes out onto a boat with him, Jesus does a miracle, and Peter realizes whose presence he's in. And immediately he falls down on his knees and says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Peter doesn't say, I'm so glad I'm in on this. He says, you should leave because I shouldn't be in the same room as you. People are constantly surprised that God would take notice of them. And here's Mary surprised that she would get an angelic visit. And here's the deal. She probably was a godly woman. There's a lot of indications that she was a godly young woman by how she responds here and by the song that she ends up singing later on in the the book of Luke. She probably was a godly young woman, but she doesn't see herself as somebody significant. She's surprised that she's noticed by the God of the universe as she lives a very ordinary life in an anonymous town. Now here's the deal. Let's talk now about hope for a moment. So I said, we're going to do this with each of these messages. We're going to pause and talk about hope. Hope is the idea that you see better days ahead and that you have some basis for those better days ahead, that it's not just wishful thinking. There's probably some of you in here, and you're dealing with grief, and you're dealing with some kind of alienation because you feel utterly unseen in your life. Maybe you're even married And you look at your marriage and you say, I don't even really feel that seen by my spouse. I feel kind of alone in this. I feel like I'm not noticed. I feel like I'm not valued. I I go to work and people don't really seem to care that I'm there. I'm just kind of a cog in this whole system. And I'm not famous. I'm not getting written up in newspapers. I'm not a published author. I'm not getting interviewed on the late night talk shows. I'm just sort of living this anonymous life and getting through. And I don't feel like I have any deep significance. And when you deal with that, we try to find hope. And so we say, all right, well, I got to find some hope that I'll be noticed. I got to find some hope that somebody will care about me. And so that hope, I'll I'll place that hope in the idea that I'll finally find love. I'll find love, or maybe even within my marriage, my spouse will finally kind of wake up to the reality of things and I'll be noticed and I'll be truly loved. And that will be what fixes it. Or we say, you know what? I'm I'm finally going to get the job where they'll appreciate me and by the money they give me and by the attention and by the title, I will be valued. I will be seen. Or maybe some of you really do kind of want to get famous. And you're like, I, I want to get my name out there. I want to be known. I want to have people talking about me and, and, and gossiping about me. I, I want to be out there in the world. Where is your hope that you will be seen? And here's the great news. Just of the first part of this angelic announcement. God sees things and people that go unseen in this world. You may feel unseen in your life right now, but you are not unseen by God. <laughs> In fact, God's message to Mary is, you've received grace, which is great news to all of us, because we would not be noticed by God in a good way if it weren't for the fact that he was noticing us with grace. We're all recipients of his grace. And before he even really gets into the message about Jesus, he first of all gives a message about Mary, and that's that people who are largely unseen by society are always seen the God of the universe. Now he moves on to the message itself. He moves on to the message about the child. In verse 30, after Mary's troubled response, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Jesus. And we'll get into this some next week again with the announcement to to Joseph because this is highlighted. But the name Jesus, that was going to be the name of this child, in Hebrew, it basically means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. And this is a theme through the Christmas story. That the child that God was sending was not just a child that was going to teach us about good and evil. And not just going to be a child that showed us the way to love one another but was going to be a child who would grow up to be the one who would save us. Because our primary need as human beings is that we need to be saved. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. And then we get into the description. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And let's just, uh, I want to focus on kind of the last part first, and then we'll move back to the title, the son of the most high. But a lot of what he talks about here and who Jesus is going to be is a description of the fulfillment of a prophecy back in Isaiah chapter nine. And I want to read it for you. Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now listen to verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is not just an ordinary birth announcement here. This is the announcement of somebody who would be a king. It's not even the first king birth announcement, but it's the announcement of a king whose reign would never end. This is different than other miraculous birth announcements in the Bible. In fact, just as a note on this, we do birth announcements in our culture today. You know when we normally do them? After the baby's born, God loves to give birth announcements before the baby is even conceived. You know why? Because God knows the end from the beginning. God loves giving miraculous birth announcements before the baby is even conceived. This isn't the first time it happened in the Bible. It happens as early back in Genesis when you have old Abraham and old Sarah and they've never been able to have children. And God appears to them and says, You are going to have a child even in your old age, and you're going to call him Isaac. And he's going to carry on the covenant. And Isaac was really important. And there are other important people that got miraculous birth announcements. Like Samson in the book of Judges. Samson was going to grow up and deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And he was born to parents that were unable to have children. In the book of 1 Samuel, there's a woman named Hannah who wasn't able to have any children. And God miraculously gives her a child, Samuel, who ends up being a great prophet and leader over the people of Israel. Even earlier in Luke, I mentioned this. John the Baptist is foretold. And actually, there's something similar said about him. You can see back in verse 32, it says, He will be great, of Jesus. The same thing was said about John the Baptist He will be great. But the reason he was going to be great was because he was going to prepare the way for the Lord. The reason why Jesus is great is because he is the Lord. In fact, here's what happens. After Mary gets this announcement from the angel, she immediately goes to visit Elizabeth. And when she goes in, Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary's walking in just very, very newly pregnant with Jesus. And as soon as Mary comes in the womb, uh, in in the room, womb we'll come into this in a moment. (laughs) As soon as she comes into the room, John the Baptist jumps in the womb. There you go. See, I worked it in. And Elizabeth starts to prophesy. And what she basically says to Mary is this. How blessed am I that the mother of my Lord would come to visit me. Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the Lord. And that's why Gabriel says of him, he will be called the son of the most high. And later on in verse 35, he just straightforwardly says he will be called the son of God. Now that title itself maybe doesn't necessarily mean that this is God in the flesh because you might say, all right, well, well, maybe it's just referring to the fact that he's going to be a king or the fact that he's going to be really important to God or that he's God's special servant. But when you look at the life of Jesus, when you even look at the fact that this is a virgin birth, but when you look at the life of Jesus, you see Jesus didn't even treat himself like he was a normal prophet in the line of all the prophets who came before him. He treated himself as if he was somebody utterly unique in what God was doing in the world. Let let me read just one passage about something that Jesus said about himself. This is in John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 25 through 27. He says, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He says, the dead are going to hear my voice and they will come out of their graves. No prophet ever talked that way. Listen to what he goes on to say after that. He says, for as the father has life in himself, so he's granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, he has given the son, authority to judge because he is the son of man. In other words, Jesus is saying this, there's going to be a final judgment. And you know who the final judge is? It's me. Now, I just got done in in my personal Bible reading time. I just got done reading through the, the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets. And the prophets have a consistent message. Every single prophet basically said this God will judge. Over and over again, there will be judgment and God will be the judge. Jesus says, There will be judgment and I will be the judge. This is not just any birth announcement. This is the announcement of the king who would reign forever and be the final judge. But here's the even better news every king has a kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus one day will have a kingdom of this world in the sense that Jesus will return and he will rule on this earth. But ultimately, Jesus' kingdom is much more than just the fact that he is going to have a physical rule. Jesus' kingdom is about him redeeming and washing men and women in his blood so that we are adopted into the family of God. Jesus came as the king who would lay down his life for his people. Jesus saved us, not just through changing external circumstances, but through transforming us and forgiving our sins. Jesus is the one and final king. Let's just talk about hope again for a minute as as we talk about all this. Um, When it comes to the whole subject of hope when we look around at the world, we can be trying to search for hope because we know that the world needs fixing. We know that the world needs to be fixed. And we also know that we need to be fixed. In fact, sometimes we're even more frustrated with ourselves than we are with the world. We're frustrated with the world because there's violence and because there's division and because there's wars and because there's chaos. And then we're frustrated with ourselves because we recognize we're part of the problem. We're committing sins. We're lying. We're not getting past our bad habits or our sinful habits and we're causing estrangement within our friends and within our family. We need hope for somebody who's going to fix this and somebody who's going to fix us. And brothers and sisters, don't ever place your hope in a politician. And don't ever place your hope in a self-help guru And don't ever place your hope in your own willpower to change yourself. All of those will fail. We have hope because a king is coming and a king has come who would lay down his life to rescue sinful, broken people and adopt them into his family forever. We have final hope because of Jesus. And we get Mary responding to this. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with the slide, so I'm just going to read here. And if you have an open Bible, you can follow along. But verse 34 is Mary's second response. And she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She asks a very understandable logistical question. She's like, all right, all all this is good so far, but I'm not married. How is this going to work? And and we might be tempted to say, well, you're not married, but you're engaged. So why did she not just assume, well, I'm not married. I'm going to get married and then I'll get pregnant. But engagement sometimes took a long time, sometimes a year or even longer than a year. Probably the, the marriage wasn't about to happen. And she's getting the indication from Gabriel, this is happening right now. She is about to get pregnant right now. So she's saying, I, uh, uh, I'm not even objecting. I'm just wondering, how is this going to work? And this is where we get the message about God. Verse 35 says, the angel answered, the Most High will come on you. And the power of the most, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And we'll get into more of this next week again with with the announcement to Joseph, because in that passage, we go back into the Old Testament prophecy about the virgin getting pregnant and giving birth. But here he's basically saying, all right, this is not even gonna be like with Abraham and Sarah where they were way past childbearing. It's not even gonna be like Zacharias and Elizabeth where she's way past menopause and this shouldn't be able to happen. This is going to be a birth where there's no human father involved. The Holy Spirit's going to take care of it. He'll take care of the logistics. We're not told all of the mechanics of this, but he's going to take care of this. There's going to be no human father involved. So in a very real way, he will be called the Son of God. And then if she's wondering about this and saying, there's miracles and then there's miracles. There's miracles, but this sounds really hard to believe. He says in verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. He basically says, if you're forgetting what God is capable of, let me give you some news about Elizabeth. And then he says this in verse 37. 37, for no word from God will ever fail. Or if you have an open Bible with a different Bible translation, it might say something like this. For nothing will be impossible for God. No promise that God makes ever fails. If you're looking at this and saying this just sounds too good to be true, don't forget that the God who promises is the God who can deliver. And then in verse 38, we get her final response. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. And, uh, you know, some of you, because I know some of you personally, um, you grew up Catholic or you have a background in the Catholic church. um, And we're not Catholic. You probably noticed that we're not (laughs) Catholic here. Um, And one of the differences we have with, with the Catholic tradition is our difference of our understanding of Mary. And it centers around the idea that in the Catholic tradition, Mary is sort of elevated to a level where you could pray to her, you receive kind of special grace from her, and that she's an intermediary between us and Jesus. She helps get us to Jesus. Um, And we don't believe that. We don't believe that the Bible teaches that. Jesus is our one savior. Jesus is our one mediator. He gets us to God. He's all we need for that. And so because as Protestants, that's what we believe, sometimes we can say like, all right, well, the Catholics, they elevate Mary way too high. We got to make sure we don't do that. And that's fine. But in that, it would be sad if we missed just what a hero of the faith Mary is. Just take this in for a moment. Mary has just been told that her life will be hijacked. This happens to everybody that God comes to and says, all right, you're going to be at the center of my plan. Noah, Abraham, Mary, you're going to be at the center of my plan. And not a single one of them, when they got this announcement, had their life get easier. Their lives always got harder, and Mary's life is about to get harder. If for nothing else, she's probably at this moment thinking, well, how am I going to tell Joseph about this? How am I going to tell my parents about this? What is my community going to think of me? What are going to be the whispers and what are going to be the rumors just about this event alone? And by the way, we know that there were whispers, And there were rumors about this because there's a scene in the gospels where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and one of the Pharisees says to him, we weren't born in sin like you were. In other words, they're saying you are an illegitimate child. They knew the rumors. They knew that there was something fishy going on here. Mary was about to just even with the virgin birth, about to take on something incredibly difficult, let alone the fact that the closer you are to what God is doing, the more peril you typically face. Mary's life got much harder after this. How in the world is she able to hear this news and just say, I'm the Lord's servant? May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary hears this news and basically says, Bring it on, I'm game. Bring it on. I'm ready. I'm ready to go ahead and do this. What a hero of the faith. How could Mary hear this news and say, I'm ready for it? And the answer to the reason that Mary could hear this news and be ready for it is that Mary had hope. Mary had hope that the God who promised would be the God who delivered. Mary had hope that as dark as this was about to get, there was light at the end of it. And as steep as this mountain was going to be, the view at the top was going to be worth it after the climb. And, you know, for all of us, when when you follow Jesus, you're not called to an easier life. You're called to a life of self-denial. You're called to difficulty, You're called to make self-denial and make sacrificial choices with your finances. You're called to forgive people even when they wrong you deeply and even when they don't apologize. You're called not to take revenge and therefore you kind of get taken advantage of sometimes. And you're called to reach out to your neighbors when you'd be much more comfortable just keeping to yourself. Sometimes following Jesus can feel like we're climbing a steep mountain and that it's difficult. And as we follow him through the path, each step step gets more difficult. It is not an easy road following Jesus. But, you know, I've noticed something. When you're hiking and you're tired and you're weary, there's something that takes the edge off. And it's when you begin to hike in the shade. And we are all hiking that mountain in the shadow of Bethlehem. We are all hiking with hope. We are all climbing with the hope that the God of the universe who's made these promises is more than able to deliver on these promises. We are all climbing that mountain in the hope that God notices everything and he cares deeply for us even when we feel forgotten. We're climbing in the hope that a savior has come who will fix the world and also will fix us. And we climb in the hope that there's no promise that God has ever made that he won't also deliver on. We do follow Jesus in a more difficult path, but we follow him on the path with hope under the shade of Bethlehem. And here's what I want to do just just with our remaining moments. You you may have come in here this morning with with a deep deficit when it comes to hope. And maybe even as we talk about this, you're recognizing, you know what? I've been putting my hope in the wrong place. Or maybe you're even saying, I I haven't been putting my hope anywhere. I, I feel like I am in despair right now. So before we close, we've reserved a couple minutes. I want to just invite us all to quiet our hearts before God and reaffirm our hope in Him. I want to invite you just to go ahead and bow your heads right now. I'll say a couple things and then I'll give us just some quiet moments. But this may be a time for you to repent of, to turn away from other places that you've put your hope. Maybe even during this season that you said, you know what, I've really put my hope in the fact that we're going to get the family together and it's going to make me feel really good And it's time to recognize that will fall flat. That will not do what you think it will do. If your hope is in money or in work or in your spouse or in any other thing, this is an opportunity for us to quiet our hearts before God and affirm that our one and only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and do that, and then I'll close us after some quiet moments here. Father, as your people right now, we claim Jesus as our only hope in life and death. We claim him as our hope that death won't be the end, and we claim him as our hope that life isn't just a cruel joke that lets us down. We claim him as the hope of all of the promises that you've made, that they will be fulfilled because nothing will separate us from your love through Christ Jesus. Father, we pray during this season, we don't simply want to focus on this Advent season, but we pray that this would be a special season of us coming to you for our hope, for our peace, for our joy, for our love. We pray that in new and fresh ways, you turn our eyes toward you and away from all the idols that we look to. Father, we pray that you renew us We pray that you show us answers to your promises. We pray that you show us answered prayers. We pray that you show us how powerful you are. And Father, we pray that you show the hope that you offer to the world through how we trust and follow you on the path that you lead us on. Thank you for the promises you give us. Thank you for the Savior and King that you've given us in Jesus. And we pray all of this in the name of that Savior and King, Jesus Christ, amen.